Hi, this is Daniel Patrick Brennan. This is the Wine is Food podcast, and I'm with Jenny Dobson today in Hawke's Bay. My last podcast before I take off for the U.S., and uh, my last one I spoke to uh, Gordon Russell from Esk Valley, and now I'm speaking with Jenny Dobson of many places right now, and uh, falls into that category of mentor for me again, where my first bunch of interviews are peers. This is definitely if not the mentor for me and say hello to everybody in podcast land jenny hi everybody <laughs> um so when i started this uh most of the people i've uh, talked to you know we had the premise of uh how you got into wine and you know speaking to people from all over the place and mostly people with pretty uh short careers so we'll try to sneak in what 33 years 35 years into something like that <laughs> um but, well, let's just start. You grew up in New Zealand, is that right? I grew up in New Zealand, um, went to university in Otago, uh, was always interested, probably initially by fascinated by smells, just aromas, smells. And growing up in New Zealand in the 1960s, wine was really not part of the culture at all. Um, very, very, very few licensed restaurants. Um, wine tended to be more of fortified, so sherries and ports. A little bit of table wine made in New Zealand. Um, probably the majority of wine in New Zealand at that stage would have been South African or French imported wines and Australian. Um, my parents, they they enjoyed wine and there was when there was wine on the table, we were allowed to enjoy it as well. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I, I found that my interest in smells also um, just made me fascinated by wine. But I went off to university not knowing what I was going to do, just following a science path. And while I was at university, I thought, hmm, I know what I want to do. I want to make wine. <laughs> so... In those days, there was no wine courses in New Zealand. Um, Roseworthy in Australia was just starting to offer um, wine courses. There was Davis in California. And I thought, oh, I was a, you know, quite young, and I thought, well, no, I don't really want to head off and study overseas. So I continued um, with my science degree at uh, Otago University and thought, as soon as I finished, I'm going to go to France and learn how to make wine. And of course, very naive. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't I forgot. It sort of didn't even occur to me the fact that I don't actually speak wine, uh, speak French. Um, and I didn't know at the time um, that the that the wine industry in in France was very male dominated. Mm. Um, that hadn't even occurred to me because I think growing up. In the, the 60s in New Zealand, which was the, the real start of the feminist movement, so girls could do anything. It didn't didn't even occur to me that there could be um, barriers because of uh, my sex in uh, France. Um, and probably just as well, otherwise I wouldn't have gone. So I blithely went over to France, and I had been quite lucky um, during my university holidays, I'd worked in a fruit wine making place. Mm. Barkers, who now, for New Zealanders, will know Barkers because they make jams and fruit juices and 
but they used to make wine. Elderberry, strawberry, <laughs> all those wonderful yeah, wines. Yeah. But wine is wine is wine. And it was a great it was a great place for me to just say, yes, I am absolutely fascinated by wine and I want to know more about it. And while I was there, I got the contact for um, a French winery in Burgundy, which turned out to be one of Burgundy's top um, <laughs> sellers. Yeah, okay, <laughs> so again, um, a very good contact to have. Uh, I wrote to them before I left New Zealand and said I'd like to come and work for them. Um, so I had a job picking grapes, and that was in 1979. And I just, I got to France and I thought, this is my home. This is where I'm meant to be. I loved the uh, the joy of food and wine, the pleasure that it gave people. Um, and so I started working at in Maurice Saint Denis, which is a, a little village in the northern part of Burgundy, just south of Dijon, and for a producer called Domaine du Jacques, uh, Jacques and Rose Cesse. And I started picking grapes, but I was fascinated by everything. Any chance I had to stay in the winery, I think I washed every bucket, scrubbed it all. Um, and by the end of vintage, by the end of the harvest, um, I was asked if I'd like to stay on. But it was staying on as a member of the family. I lived with them. I did whatever work needed doing, either in the cellar, in the vineyard, looking after the children, um, doing whatever. And for me, that was the real start of forming my philosophy about wine. Wine is, we make wine for people to enjoy. It's for enjoyment. Um, wine has to be something really special. And it's through the growing and the making that you make something really special. So I spent two years at Dujac. And what did they produce there? Almost? Pinot Noir. Just, just like Pinot. Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. And... <coughs> oh. Oh, there is the telephone. We're but yeah. <laughs> just Pinot Noir, but the wonderful thing about um, living with the Cess family is they had an amazing cellar. Jacques Cess had an amazing cellar. And... Generally, if you're working in a producing area in France, you only drink wine from that area. But Jacques Cesse had come from a from Paris. He was a Parisian. Um, therefore, he wasn't so entrenched in only drinking Pinot Noir. And his father had started a cellar for him when he was born. And he had wines from all over France. He was interested in wines from elsewhere in the world. So he had Californian wines. He had Italian wines. There's some Spanish wines. And so I got to drink wines from all over the place, all over the world, not just mm. um, from Burgundy. But I really, really got to know Burgundy. Burgundy is... Um, the maker is really important in Burgundy. You have the appellation, but within one given appellation, you may have 10 different makers. So there's the appellation, which gives the, gives the definition to the wine, but then there's the maker's signature on that definition. Um, 
so when you when I was tasting wines in Burgundy, the first thing you'd say, mm, it's probably a Cote de Bone, it's probably from this village, and it'll be this producer. Um, because the producer has a signature on mm-hmm. that wine. So two years in Burgundy and absolutely confirmed to me I was in the right place. I was doing what I wanted. Um, I then had a little bit of a deviation. I, I um, well, In fact, before I went to Paris, I went and worked for a small producer in Mercure, uh, which is in the in the southern part of Burgundy in an area called the Côte Chalonnet. And again, making Pinot Noir. And I was just there for two months, um, which was very good for my French because the owner didn't speak English. So I really... You were forced. (laughs) I was forced to to speak French. I then went to Paris and I worked for Stephen Spurrier. Um, Stephen is an Englishman who made his name by starting a wine tasting school and a wine shop in Paris and recently has has come back into spot into the spotlight because in 1986 he organized a tasting of French wines versus Californian wines 76 76 76, sorry Um, which is uh, there was a film made recently The Judgment of Paris doesn't do Stephen Spurrier any justice at all, but um, <laughs> Stephen was very avant-garde, um, bringing a wine school to Paris um, was something pretty novel, and so I worked with him for two years, which was again just gave me the opportunity to taste so many wines, because again, like Jacques says, uh, he had wines from all over France. He had wines from all over the world. So it was what we were working. Doing I was working mainly in the wine tasting school, mm-hmm. and I gave um, courses on the wines of France. They were introductory courses in English. Um, a lot of Americans in Paris in mm-hmm. those days, and also um, uh, the OECD was based just outside Paris, and a lot of foreigners um, in France. Uh, working you didn't for run the OECD, into Julia Childs there, or anybody like that, you know? Not Julia Childs, but um, there was a very close association with a wine tasting school called La Varenne, and um, a lot of uh, chefs came yeah, through. Yeah, sure. And in fact, uh, I'm just trying to think. I think I did a special course a while ago. Um, it was a six-week course, but. Uh, I think I did a special one for the the cooking school for La Varenne. So maybe you did, and you don't yeah, even well, know. exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and if it wasn't um, Julia Charles, it was definitely one of her mm-hmm. uh, apprentices. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the wine that again gave me an, a wonderful opportunity to learn more and more about the wines of France. We also. At each course, we married the the wines with the food uh, with the cheeses of the reg- region, so it was the whole food and wine matching um, See, cheeses. Think, yeah, particularly cheese, I think it's really tough. So you have to be oh, exactly really good at it. Yeah, but th- that's where I think you know France the the cheeses of the area have evolved with the wines. Mm-hmm. So if you stick to the cheeses of the area, 
then you find that there's wines that actually go with them. And the hardest area to actually get cheeses with was Bordeaux because Bordeaux doesn't really produce any cheese. Mm. And so trying to find uh, cheeses that went with Bordeaux wines was actually really difficult. Uh, with the white wines, when they were Sauvignon-based, you could move towards the, the goat's cheese in the, in the Loire. But for red wines, it was actually really difficult. Um, and some of the best matches with the uh, Bordeaux wines were actually the hard Dutch cheeses. Oh, um, okay. <clears throat> they were a better match than... Something that could hold up to those bigger yeah, reds. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And Sauterne, the blue cheese, would work really well. So Roquefort with the Sauterne. But for the red wines, uh, it, was really, it was probably the most difficult of the cheese matches. Mm. Um, so after after Paris, I, I loved living in Paris. It was an absolute buzz. That um, I probably ate out five <laughs> nights a week, mm -hmm. but not in in Michelin starred restaurants. But you found the the local restaurants where you could mm -hmm. eat for ten francs or fifteen francs. Um, so absolute buzz living in in Paris. But I guess after two years, I was really tired of living on the sixth floor and mm. not seeing any grass and when you could see any grass you weren't allowed to walk on it or mm. sit on it or touch it so I thought time to get back to production and this was in 1982 and it was being touted as the vintage of the century one of the very many vintages mm. of the century that they have in France <laughs> yeah. so I thought, right, I better get to Bordeaux. I know Burgundy. I better go and find out what's happening in Bordeaux. And I got a vintage job in um, Bordeaux for the 1982 vintage at a property called Chateau Raoul, which was in the Grave region of France. And a very interesting property. It was actually owned by one of Australia's great wine men, Len Evans, and he had a partner, um, Peter Fox, and the two of them owned Chateau Raoul. Chateau Raoul, uh, when I went there, was actually in receivership because they'd, the two partners had run into financial difficulty. Um, Len Evans, there was remnants of Len Evans all around the chateau, <laughs> lots of lots of um, bits and pieces that he'd left there. Um, there was an, a uh, Danish winemaker who'd learnt his uh, winemaking in South Africa. So a very untraditional mix in mm. Bordeaux, <laughs> which was really interesting. Um, Brian Crozer... Brian Crozer, who's a, um, one of Australia's leading wine names, he'd worked at Chateaurol a couple of years previously. Um, there was a, also a Danish um, boy working there, Peter Sissak, who is of um, what's it called Pingus, which is a very well-known. Spanish winery now, mm -hmm. so quite a, a, a bed of uh, interest at Raoul. 
So I was there in the 82 vintage, um, brilliant vintage in Bordeaux. Very hot, actually quite challenging for the Bordelais. Um, refrigeration in wineries in those days was actually quite rare. Yeah. And so uh, normally there hadn't been issues with uh, vats getting very hot because it was cooler during the fermenting time. So although 82 was a brilliant year just because of what the, the growing season, uh, it still had its challenges in the winery. And Chateau Raoul being in the Grave made reds and whites, the reds out of the traditional Merlot Cabernet Franc Cabernet Sauvignon, um, and whites made with Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc. And with the Australian con um, connection with Chateau Raoul, they'd done a lot of work on yeast and had actually isolated their own, with the help of the Bordeaux University, had isolated their own yeast off the, the vineyard. So that was really interesting because it seems, it'll seem weird to winemakers today, but in 1982, um, there weren't packets of yeast available that you could throw in to start ferments going. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was really the very, very beginning of um, introduced yeasts. Uh, up until then, it was it was all done with um, the indigenous yeast on, on the grapes. So when they isolated, did they actually like then kind of make their own packets of it? And no, they, they, they had it actually in a, um, um, a frozen form and so it was just like um, they'd get it from the university and have to build it up themselves and mm -hmm. um, then use it to inoculate um, their tanks mm. so <clears throat> the very it was by 1983 you certainly were buying we were buying packets of yeast um, but there wasn't anywhere near the variety of yeast that are available today. You just bought a yeast, yep. wine yeast. Um, so I'd when I went to Chateau Raoul, I just took my holiday. Um, so I had a two months break from Paris, but it had, those two months in Bordeaux just convinced me that I wanted to get back to production. Um, it was just the whole buzz of mm -hmm. Making, yeah, wine. Yeah, yeah. making wine, yeah, making wine, making wine, making wine. So I went back to Paris and resigned from my job. Again, naively thinking that um, I'd get a job, would be no problem. Um, and I guess I was just in the right place at the right time because I did um, get a job in Bordeaux and started in uh, February 1983. Um, one of the things that I forgot to mention when I was in Burgundy um, I, uh, apart from learning French, I realised that the wine industry in France was totally male-dominated, mm -hmm. that um, women were not appreciated in the in the winery at all. It's okay, you could go out in the vineyards and do some pruning and do yeah, some work, yeah. you know, work like that, but not in the winery. And in fact, in 1979, I went to wineries where there were signs outside the cellar saying, so forbidden <laughs> for women to enter. Wow. And I asked Shark Sess, you know, what what's with this? Yeah. And he's he and this he's a university educated man and he replied, Well women have funny acids in their body 
and they turn the wine to vinegar. What? <laughs> so, now this isn't, it might, I know a lot of people weren't alive in 1979, yeah. but it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and there was a great belief um, that not only did women turn wines to vinegar, but also a wine would re-ferment every month because oh. a woman had her period. Oh. So the wines would re-ferment. So women weren't allowed in cellars. And um, okay. I, I said to Jacques, well, surely you don't really don't believe that. No, that wouldn't be the reason why you're not allowed women in the cellar. And he said, oh, well, they probably just distract men when, yeah. they're, <laughs> when they're pumping over the vats. They look at the women and they take the hoses with them and, and, <laughs> and wine goes on the floor. Yeah. But certainly women were not were not meant to be in um in cellars and when i when i sat and thought of, well when i thought about it um my conclusion was really that wine is not a job it's a life mm -hmm. and women were far too busy to dedicate their lives to wine they had the house to run and the children to bring up so therefore they couldn't take on the jobs and in, in as a winemaker um, so when I went to Bordeaux again, um, it was still perhaps Bordeaux is perhaps a little bit more um, not perhaps not quite so traditional as Burgundy, but I was the first woman winemaker or maître de chez in the Maydoc. So still in nineteen eighty three it wasn't yeah, no, it wasn't um considered a job for a woman. Um subsequently it's really changed and I think if you go to the um Bordeaux University now and to the wine school you'll find over fifty percent mm -hmm. of the students are actually women. Um so lots of changes in in that time. Um so 1983, I started in Bordeaux, um, Chateau Saint-Jacques, which was a cru bourgeois in the Médoc. Um, the vineyard had been abandoned during the growing season. So even though 1983 was a very good vintage, um, Saint-Jacques struggled because of the disease in the vineyard. Mm. So that was a challenge. Um, and just got through it though yeah and 84 the vineyard was taken in hand by a neighbor who i then worked very closely with for the the next um eight yeah i guess to with 10 all, years. The, all the problems it was a good introduction oh, to dive right in figure exactly out what's going on. 1984 is not considered a very good vintage in bordeaux but at senajac the um 84 vintage was better than the 83 um, and that was just the vineyard being taken in hand. Um, and so an amazing experience at Saint-Jacques, again, bringing a vineyard from an almost abandoned state mm -hmm. um, back into a top-producing chateau. Um, and I think by the time I left, um, Saint-Jacques was considered one of the top cru bourgeois um, made 
delicious wines. Um, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc. Initially a little bit of Malbec, but mm -hmm. we pulled the Malbec out. Oh. Unfortunately, Dad, <laughs> we pulled the Malbec out. D didn't perform as well as your Malbec does oh. in New Zealand. Um, and we also made a little bit of white wine, um, which was 100% Semillon. Oh, okay. So very interesting, barrel fermented, um, brilliant, brilliant wine. Semillon's one of these great varieties that will that just ages so well in in bottle. You can um, you can age it. In fact, in the private cellar at at uh, Saint Jacques, they had 1928 Semillon that was just still a delicious old wine. Mm. Um, so Semillon has the capacity to age really, really well. Uh, so, Saint-Jacques was a absolute challenge, um, but the owner, um, who was in fact an American, but the property had been in his family since 18, about 1860. Um, it was a French family who then emigrated to um, the United States, but spent six months in each country. And um, he was, he invested a lot of time and money into Saint-Jacques when I was there. He built a new winery, which again was a, a, a challenge and... and um, learning experience. A learning experience. We moved from concrete vats into stainless steel. And I realized how good concrete vats were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, one of the, the things with the concrete vat, it holds its heat. Yep. Um, the first year we were in the new winery, which was 1987, it was a very cold year mm. in Bordeaux. Um, thankfully, the tanks had heating and cooling, but I hadn't even thought about having to use the heating. Yeah. Um, and it was absolutely mandatory. Um, so... Yeah, we were Realized just, just talking about this with mm -hmm. Gordon uh, on the, the last podcast, how whoever built the, the stone uh, fermenters mm -hmm. or at uh, yes. Esk really must have known what they were doing about kinetics and, mm -hmm. and physics because they build them sort of halfway in the ground and they hold this heat and he just loves them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Did you guys keep some of those? Yes, we, we kept the old winery. Um, so the concrete vats were there. Of course, concrete vats are a, a challenge in themselves. These were rough concrete, and when we cleaned them, if you cleaned them with caustic soda, which is a sort of normal thing for cleaning tartrates off of um, a vat, you actually have to reseal them with tartaric acid. Oh. So um, you, it's quite, quite a, um, a job keeping concrete clean. Yeah. Um, some... In some places I've seen uh, they can put a wax lining on the concrete and in other places I've seen epoxy resin mm -hmm. on the concretes as well. So um, there's, there's a little bit of yeah, work involved work. with yeah. um, with concrete vats. And of course with concrete vats uh, you've got to, you may have to cool them because although they keep their heat beautifully, they, they can also keep their heat, <laughs> keep their heat, yeah. and so the, again, it was w learning how to work with those concrete vats. I never filled. I tried to fill them alternately, so I had an empty concrete vat, because the concrete vats were in block and in, in, in um, blocks, so they were 
they one touched another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd never fill consecutively. I'd fill one concrete vat, leave one empty, fill another one. So I had an air, a cold vat in between two fermenting vats, mm-hmm. and then I'd I'd re- uh, I'd um, when I came back to fill the empty vats. The other vats would have finished fermenting. Um, we d- we had all sorts of passive me- methods of uh, cooling by opening doors at night and letting the cooler night air blow mm-hmm. through the winery and take the lid off if you needed to. Um, if we had to cool in those concrete vats, we actually had to take the wine out, pass it by through a, a cooler, and there was no... Nice machines. <laughs> no, these were just um, hoses that you ran Through water over. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> no, no refrigeration. Yeah, no, no it actually, the, this um, cooling, well, I, I loathe to call it a cooling unit, <laughs> but it was a set of pipes that you ran the wine through. Um, it had a tray at the top that you could put blocks of ice in it, and so you could dribble water mm-hmm. over the ice which would then fall on the hose on the hoses and i can remember i went out and bought some sacking some hessian cloth burlap mm-hmm. in, in american and sewed it onto these um hoses so i'd get even more evaporative cooling that keep the pipes even colder and then had a fan blowing on the pipes so i got evaporative cooling it's a lot of work to do, yeah. and and um, of course, ferments don't stop during at night, and so it, I'd have to try and keep this thing going at night. So sort of every four hours, I'd set my alarm and get Run up over and do something. <laughs> that was the that was the beauty of um, living on site yes. in France. I was just across the courtyard from the winery, so just put the dressing gown on, mm-hmm. rush across the yard. Yep, everything's going, or, or change vats out of this vat into the other. So moving to the um, new winery uh, did alleviate the heating and cooling issues, um, but I guess with the old concrete vats, it was more or less you worked with what you were given. Mm-hmm. When you went to stainless steel, it was up to you to decide what temperature you wanted it was no longer nature it's a little bit like in france you can't irrigate you have to deal with what nature gives you Mm -hmm. in new zealand you irrigate so how much water should you be giving them and then of course what rain comes along so after you've you know nicely calculated you're going to give them so many mils per per liter per uh, mils per plant per per uh, week and then rain comes along and changes it. Yeah. So sometimes when you have to intervene, you don't know when, what intervention you have to take. Um, you leave the cooling on. And, well, uh, exactly. <laughs> oops, oops. Yeah. Oh, well, that was actually a, a, a trial we were yeah. conducting to to see what happens when you cool a ferment in the yes. middle of um, f- <laughs> ferment. Um, so after, uh, I guess, I, I spent... Um, 12, 13 vintages at Saint-Jacques. Um, it was probably a lot of family reasons deciding to look at coming back to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and quite a hard decision to make at that stage because I'd all my working life I'd yeah. been in France and my I loved the diversity of French wines um, I loved the philosophy and the the of the place where wine sits in the French culture and its everyday life um, so quite wasn't actually sure whether we could leave France but had a job opportunity in Western Australia so we just packed the house up and went off to to Western Australia with a return ticket mm-hmm. um, to do a vintage in Western Australia and this was in the Franklin River uh, region of Western Australia um, the majority, I guess the most well-known area of Western Australia is the um, Margaret River, and the Franklin River is south-east from the Margaret River, um, inland, um, but really nothing between um, the Franklin River area and Antarctica. So it's just sea all the way down. Very hot during the day, but cold at night. So you can have... 40 degrees, you have to put that into Fahrenheit for oh, people, yeah. oh, about 100, 100 and, or something, yeah, yeah, something like that. But then down to 18 degrees at night. Um, so extremes between daytime and nighttime temperature. Very dry. Um, and a, this was my first um, working with Syrah or Shiraz. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also had Riesling, um, which was just a wonder to work with. I loved working with the Riesling Chardonnay, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot, and Malbec. Um, lovely Malbec. And what year was this? That was 1985. Um, 95. Fi- 95. Yeah. 1995. Yeah, yeah, so the sort of Australian wine boom was really just Just starting. Yeah. Um, Western Australia at that stage... Um, hadn't had the massive plantings. They they went on in the couple of years after that, and I actually spent the vintage um, at Franklin Estate was there until August, so um, February through August, um, and then decided to come to New Zealand. Um, but I actually went back to Franklin Estate um, in a consultancy role for the next six or so years mm-hmm. and I went back there every two uh, twice a year and the, the plantings each time I went back it's to Franklin I went, my eyes just went <gasps> yeah. the, the plantings that just went into the sunset um, very isolated and these um, enormous plantings of, of vineyards and there just wasn't the labour um, locally to look after these vineyards so they'd bring in gangs from Margaret River um, but That's a, uh, they were set up to be machine. Always a funny term that I know I, I didn't even think about it when I was in uh, Napa this past year when I mentioned yeah we have gangs in for <laughs> yeah. to come okay. do the picking but uh, and I never Groups. thought of it because I've only worked in right. uh, yeah like uh, New Zealand mm. vineyards so when I said gangs, they were like, well, you didn't mean Ooh, like the yeah. Bloods and the Crips from L.A. were coming to pick fruit for you guys? No, oh, no, sorry. Yeah, Cruise or cruise, something. Like, cruise, cruise, yeah. So, cruise, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so um, Western Australia was 
awesome to work in. Um, wonderful potential, um, amazing, amazing lines. Um, and certainly just totally confirmed to me that um, I could leave France, that um, there was, yeah, I could make other. wine elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It was still, what I did find really hard was the philosophy that there wasn't the same, wine didn't hold the same part in culture um, as it did in France. And so that was, that was quite challenging, um, especially then coming back to New Zealand um, and and again, it was before the big Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, um, Sauvignon Blanc boom. Um, I think in 1995, 1996, when I came back to New Zealand, Hawke's Bay and Marlborough, the vineyard areas were, were about the same. So both areas had about 4,000 hectare of vines. Um, Hawke's Bay, I think, now is just getting on to 5,000 hectare of vines, and Marlborough has something like 25,000 yeah, hectare yeah, yeah. of vines. So the growth um, in, the vine in, in New Zealand wine in the, the last 15 years has been absolutely enormous, but not so much the growth of Hawke's Bay. Um, it's been growth in Sauvignon Blanc. Mm -hmm. um, so... Coming back to New Zealand, um, I started in Hawke's Bay because that was the logical place with my background from Bordeaux. Sure. Um, Hawke's Bay is where you can reliably ripen the Bordeaux grape varieties, so the, the Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc. Um, you can reliably ripen them 10 years out of 10, um, which isn't the same for... Uh, other growing areas in um, New Zealand, except perhaps for Waiheke, but that's certainly, so it's tiny, very yeah. small, and it was even smaller in um, 1995, 1996. Uh, so started work in Hawke's Bay as a consultant. Um, I guess one of the things that people really wanted my help with in those those days was blending um, blending and post-ferment maceration post-ferment maceration is where you leave the new wines um, with the skins after the ferment and I think the so many New Zealand winemakers were trained in Australia and part of the traditional um, making wines in Australia wasn't to do post-ferment maceration and so this was something quite new to them. Um, it was a bit of a scary technique uh, where, for me, post-ferment maceration was just, Reality. you do it, yeah, you do yeah, it. Yeah. And, they, and it's good for the wine and you do it. It's, it's an, as important as the actual ferment. So there was, I guess, sort of holding people's hands, giving them confidence to, yes, no, there's nothing going wrong there. Just wait, just taste, keep tasting and giving them the confidence to um, assess what they were tasting and make those decisions as to when to take the wines off skins. And then also with blending, um, I think I ran across a lot of people who looked at blending as something that you had to do when you had a bad wine, you had to blend it away. So there was this idea that if you blended, it was because you had a problem mm. where I'd 
always looked on blending of ma- as something synergistic, two and two making five, and the, the, the sum of the, the parts or the parts, are, it should be better than the sum of the parts. And so putting that 2% of something else in just lifts the blend um, immeasurably. So did a lot of work with people with blending. Um, again, just giving them confidence in their own palettes and seeing what blending could do. And then in 1998, uh, one of the people I'd been working with was the Lawson family of Te Awa Farm, and they built a winery. Up to that stage, they'd had their, their wines contract made, and they needed a winemaker. And I guess initially I said, no, 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 I'm quite happy with consultancy. And then I thought, no, I'd actually really like to get back to having, living a wine. Yeah, yeah. So started with um, uh, Gus and, and Ian Lawson in 1998, new winery again, um, still probably in a, well, it was a new winery. It was a shed that had some tanks in it. Um, and we we worked with building the winery, um, building the wine, building the market. Um, so everything absolu- from start up, yeah. Ev- everything from start up. Mm-hmm. And also a restaurant with the um, winery. Started off as a cafe, just serving platters, and then moved on to an, um, an absolutely amazing restaurant. So did a lot of food and wine matching. Um, and I think that's one of the things with the Tiawa wines. They were always very food-friendly wines. They were wines that were refreshing. They were wines that um, just had a natural partner- partnership with food. Um, and they Yeah, I found, because well, I, I worked there doing a lot of those weddings and everything and serving all those wines that, um, you know, Kiwis particularly, you know, we did a lot of weddings for New Zealanders there, people down from Auckland and things like that, and they would... You know, you give them a glass of this or a glass of that, mm. and they go, mm, yeah, you know, like not the huge first initial reaction that you get out of so many New mm. Zealand wines where they're, it, you know, still distinctly Kiwi wines. But you would find, you know, as the second glass came and as the food came out that, they, you know, you just get these amazing compliments and people just, oh, you know, they, mm. it was more like drinking the bottle rather than drinking the glass is what I found there. And what I, I think was, that's, a, that's a nice um, analogy. Um, and I think that's, I look for complexity and texture and flow in a wine rather than upfront mm. impact and four square wines that go nowhere. So I'd much prefer a wine that was subtle, that was complex, that um, you actually had to go back and re-smell and then you th- suddenly it, you're actually seeing the beauty and the layers of aromas in the wine. That, that's exactly why I ended up there because yeah. I went and tasted the wines, and I said, "I want to go back and taste <laughs> those wines again, <laughs> and uh, and again, and and uh, yeah, that's because I, you know, ta- I went went into the restaurant to work there and talked to Craggy and a few other places, but those those wines interest me more than any other place. So that was. Uh, but then, of course, things changed again for, mm. for all of us. So yes, and so um, ten years, ten years at uh, Te Awa, and um, then it was time to do something different mm-hmm, again. Mm-hmm. So 
I'm now working, I loathe to say the word consultant because the consultant has this sort of idea of just flitting in and yeah. flitting out. And I guess I work with people on, on quite specific um, projects. Uh, so it's a, it's a more involved, hands-on um helping people realize their dreams mm-hmm. um so i'm working with unison um vineyards uh awesome little property great vineyard and expressing the best that they can get out of their vineyard so it's a very close relationship with them and dan is there as well and then with the murdoch uh william murdoch a vineyard and winery um, and I think you've interviewed Hayden. Yeah, yeah, we've got so, some info up on that as uh, well, yeah. So, uh, again, an, an amazing vineyard in the Gimlet Gravels, only half a kilometre away and from so Unison. And so different. And yeah. so different. Yeah, yeah, and the, the Gimlet Gravels is an amazing growing area within Hawke's Bay. It's a very limited area. There's about 800 hectare there. Um, a lot of it planted now. Um, but even within the Gimlet Gravels, there is such a variety. There is there is terroir within terroir. Mm. The Gimlet Gravels is a, is a quite unique um, expression of wines. You get quite unique expression of wines from the Gimlet Gravels. But within the Gimlet Gravels, there is very unique expressions of the vineyard sites. And in fact, I work with three different people within the Gimlet Gravels. There's the Sacred Hill Vineyard, which is the warmest of the three vineyards that I work um, with. And it's about half a kilometre, 500 um, metres from the Unison Vineyard. Uh, the Deerstalkers Vineyard, which is the Sacred Hill Vineyard, is in the lee of Roy's Hill. So I think it has some extra heat that is just generated because it doesn't get... Sort of trapped in there. It's trapped in, it gets trapped heat, it's closer to the river. So that that, that, um, vineyard has quite a different expression of the Gimlet Gravels to the Unison Vineyard, which has a different expression to the Murdoch Vineyard. Um, Murdoch is the coolest of the three sites and when I say cool it's still warmer Mm. than most other red growing sites in Hawke's Bay it's just slightly cooler within the context of Gimlet Gravels has a very floral um, very perfumed expression um, within of the um, the the vineyard character is a very floral, perfumed expression. Unison has a more um, warm earth spice, um, a lot of the the nutmeg, allspice um, expression within the wines. And then the warmer Deerstalkers vineyard has a, a, a richness of fruit, and that along with a licorice spice that's quite unique to, to that growing area. Now, um, one of the things that we're seeing with Hawke's Bay and, well, New Zealand, but mostly Hawke's Bay and the Gibbet Gravels mm. is the, uh, everybody flexing their muscles with the Syrah these days. Um, and we will have some Syrah 
well, there's I know some Unison Syrah in Australia, and I don't mm-hmm. know if there may be some in the UK, but definitely now some in the US. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know, it might be a good idea to talk about that a little bit and what you think of uh, Syrah is a really, really interesting grape variety, especially in Hawke's Bay. There's only a tiny tiny amount planted in New Zealand. It makes up probably 0.5% of the vineyard plantings in New Zealand. Um, Still, I don't think we've broken 300 hectare. I think it's still under 200 hectare, under 300 hectare of Syrah planted in New Zealand, but it really punches above its weight. Um, There's a uniqueness about Syrah grown. um, I'm going to limit it to Hawke's Bay, um, there's Syrah grown in, around the Auckland area, um, north of Auckland, Waiheke Island, a little bit in Martinborough and a tiny bit in um, Marlborough. But Hawke's Bay and Syrah are a natural partnership. Um, the expression of Syrah in Hawke's Bay has a spice it has a, a red fruit. It has a floral character. Um, it has the pepper, which yeah. is very distinctive. That was the first thing that when I got here in 08, the, I was sort of tasting all the 05s and 06s, and I had had some, uh, you know, Rhone Valley Syrah and a little bit of California Syrah, which were polar, you know, very mm. different, and then obviously a lot of Shiraz, which had that boom had come, but I had never tasted anything with that white pepper sort of distinction and and yeah i think we were talking last night about how great of food wines they are as well and Mm -hmm. uh, hoping that uh people aren't as scared of them and they come out and and drink them and everything Uh, but there's certainly a bit of a swell and interest in there um Mm -hmm. from you know sommeliers and people that are really starting to know their stuff so it's going to be interesting to see the reaction to these wines in the next few years. You know? Well, I think the Syrah from Hawke's Bay is, Hawke's Bay has a real distinction. The Syrah has a real distinction when it comes from Hawke's Bay. Um, it's a little bit like the Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough. is very distinct in the world of Sauvignon Blanc. And New Zealand Syrah, Hawke's Bay Syrah, is very distinct in the world of Syrah. So it has similarities to the aromatics of the Northern Rhone. So it's more like the Northern Rhone than Australian Shiraz. But you, in terms of texture and structure, New Zealand Syrah is very distinct compared to the Northern Rhone. There's more of a velvety texture in New Zealand Syrah. And the tannins are... I, I don't want to say finer, but because I'm sure the, the tannins in the Northern Rhone are very fine, <laughs> but there's a difference in the tannin structure in the Syrahs from Hawke's Bay. I think about Syrah as an aromatic red, and its structure is driven by its acidity. And I'm going to take Peter Cowley, who's the winemaker from Tomatas, um, I'm going to quote him, mm-hmm. and he says that uh, Syrah is the thinking man's Pinot. Mm. And I, I consider uh, Pinot Noir and Syrah, in terms of their structure and makeup, are quite similar. Pinot Noir is driven, its structure is driven by its acidity, 
and Syrah is the same. And that's where they become such great food wines because you're not struggling with um, tannins that will clash with so many uh, dishes. The Syrah, just the, the acidity on the Syrah will just carry both the wine flavor and the food flavor on the finish. Um, great wines with foods. Yeah. And chefs love them because you've got this these layerings of flavors. You've got the spice, you've got the fruit, you've got a savory note that might be a gaminess or a meatiness, um, and you've got the pepper. Mm. So great food wines, really very, very versatile. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And it's... Even because I see even within, and I know Gibbo Gravel is a little different than other parts of Hawke's Bay, but even within New Zealand, Pinot is so varied, you Mm. know, from all different parts of the country, from the crazy ones down in Otago to the Marlboro Flinty ones to the earthy, mushroomy Martinboro Mm. ones. They seem, and maybe it's just the fact that, you know, you were growing Pinot in a lot different regions and a lot different climates, but uh, New Zealand Syrah is sort of distinct in its own right. I think I, what I'd probably be tougher to pick out New Zealand Pinot as to, uh, if you had five different regions picking out to say that, oh, these are all New Zealand ones as opposed to the Syrah. I don't mm. know, maybe. But um, yeah, so that's uh, brought us up to present, mm. I guess. And uh, uh, well, I guess we'll look forward to tasting your wines. And I feel like, yeah, these podcasts so far have been how, how people have gotten into it, haven't gotten to this point. And I think, uh, well, after this next trip, I'll probably have an arsenal of new questions for you and new things to talk about. And uh, uh, much like talking to Gordon on the last one, I think we just scratched the surface of things we could talk about. So uh, we're right up to 53 minutes, which I think is our, oh, wow. <laughs> our longest one yet. <laughs> and uh, which is cool because uh, I personally have... Uh, Wanted to accumulate a few before I spoke to you because, um, yeah, sort of getting my thing down with this and getting an understanding of it. So, yeah, what we'll do is uh, what I'd like to do on the website uh, when I post this uh, on the Posterous uh, website, which you can link to through the iTunes and through my uh, decibelwines.com website, is we'll have links up to maybe we can get some of the vineyards that you worked at in france and people mm-hmm. if they want to dig into that a little bit um and we'll um, you know put up some other information obviously if people want to email me they can do it wine is food at gmail.com if you have any questions and uh yeah we'll, we'll get up some more information so that they can dig around if they want and and Sounds see great. see what's up there and uh yeah, we'll talk soon. And right. thanks a lot for doing this. And thanks for dinner and breakfast. Right. Oh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Cheers.